Hello and welcome to Tape Notes, the podcast that looks behind the scenes at the magic of recording and producing music. Every episode we'll be reuniting an artist and producer and talking through some of the highlights from their collaboration in the studio. So join us as we lift the lid on the creative process and the inner workings of music production to see what lies beneath. Hello, I'm John Kennedy, and joining me for this episode of Tape Notes is Matthew Herbert to talk about how he wrote, recorded, and produced the album The Horse. Matthew Herbert is an experimental electronic artist and producer from Kent, England. A trained musician from a young age, Matthew started playing violin and piano at the age of four and by 16 had begun touring Europe with various orchestras. Going to study at Exeter University, it was here his fascination about the relationship between electronics and music grew. This curiosity led him to start sampling everyday objects for his compositions. Refining his techniques, Matthew started to release music under several names, including Dr. Rocket, Wish Mountain, and Herbert, each representing different angles of his creative exploration. In 1996, he released a series of EPs under the name Herbert, bringing them together for his debut album, 100 Pounds. Gaining widespread recognition for his unique approach, in 2001, he received international acclaim for the record Bodily Functions, made using sounds sampled from teeth, bones, and eyes. In 2011, he pushed his sonic experimentation further with the release of One Pig, an album created from sounds produced over the lifetime of a pig from birth through life and eventual consumption. Alongside his innovative and explorative music, Matthew has produced records for a variety of artists, including Roisin Murphy, Mika Levy, and Björk. His compositions can also be heard on numerous award-winning projects within film, television, and theater. Most recently, Matthew has collaborated with the London Contemporary Orchestra, creating The Horse, an album once again showcasing his appetite to push concepts, recording techniques, and instrumentation to the extreme. Today, I join Matthew at his studio in Kent, and what better way to start our conversation than by hearing something from the record? This is The Horse's Bones Are In A Cave. The Horse's Bones Are in a Cave. It is Matthew Herbert and the London Contemporary Orchestra from the album The Horse. That is the opening track. And I'm very pleased to say that I'm with Matthew Herbert here in his studio um, in the marshes of Kent. Hello, Matthew. Uh, good afternoon. It's great to be here. Thanks so much for inviting us. And I mean, The Horse's Bones Are in a Cave starts the story of this album, The Horse, but it also starts the story of music in a way. I mean, there's there are a lot of different things going on on this record, and you're the ideal person to explain that. <laughs> Thank you. Well, it's nice to be here. Thanks for having me. Yeah, so I I knew I wanted to make a record uh, with a skeleton, and I decided to try to find the biggest skeleton I could find, which on eBay at the time was a horse. And I bought it, and then it, it sat in the corner of my studio in boxes for a good three or four weeks whilst I panicked and thought, what on earth have I done? I don't even have space to lay it out. I don't know how to assemble it. 
And then, so I just started beginning. So I was like, well, I, I knew it'd be some sort of percussion instrument, but then I was like, okay, well, the, the, let's make some flutes out of its bones. Uh, and I had somebody called Henry Dagg who lives up in Faversham is a extraordinary musical instrument maker. He built, for example, the Sharpsichord, which is a giant pin barrel organ, which um, I introduced him to Bjork and he went on, she took it on tour as part of the Biophilia tour. Um, and he made these um, four flute bones from its legs for me. And then I just sort of began really. So in a way, the idea of doing the beginnings of music was an accident actually. And then I was like, oh, wait a minute, I'm right at the beginnings of the earliest music. So quite quickly I was like, okay, well, if I then move from bone flutes to real flutes, then from real flutes to sampled flutes, and then to electronics and things, then I'm sort of telling a history of music and the musical imagination and technology and things like that. So what, you, what you're hearing there at the beginning is um, four flutes played by um, the London Contemporary Orchestra. And I gave them to them and I just sort of said, imagine you're the very first people to play these instruments and just go, you know. And of course, they'd never played a horse's leg before. <laughs> and they're pretty big. They're sizable. I can go and get them in a minute and you can see them for anyone. Are they heavier? They're fairly heavy, but they're really twisted. Um, so you have to hold them in a strange way. And they've got a very odd mouthpiece called a fipple flute. Um, and Henry used beeswax to make the thing. And when I recorded some with Shabaka, he was like, I don't think I can play these. This, and of course, being Shabaka about 10 minutes later, he was playing it like a maestro. Yeah. But it's they're quite cumbersome, weird kind of things. And actually, a lot of the record really is about trying to understand music by doing it. So, so much of the music really is about sort of discovery, trying to work out how to, how they would have done it, how it would have felt. And in my head, before I started the project, I sort of thought, well, when the first music would have been, da, 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 someone would have picked up and played a melody. But of course, that's very unlikely to happen. And in a way, that's what we discovered was the flautists all sort of went like this, like a trill. And you realized actually, for the very earliest people to pick up a leg of a horse and blow through it and to hear sound and hear melodic sound or a pure tone would have felt very strange, I should imagine, quite alarming and felt immediately like you're, you've found the soul of the horse or the, you're connected to the universe or the ancestors or something really strange, I think you would have felt. And you can hear that in there, like this sort of almost kind of sort of like a warning thing. And that's really how how the record begins. And then the sort of last detail that I, for me, was really sort of moving and um, brilliant aspect of making this was, I was like, well, if I'm doing the origins of music, the acoustic would have been important as well of how you'd have heard it. So I, so I went to Northern Spain. I took the train down to Northern Spain and recorded in... Paleolithic caves in front of the world's oldest horse drawings or some of the world's oldest horse drawings. And, um, and kept... what did you record there? I mean, was it just a field recording or were you recording music there? Well, I well? wanted to record the flutes. I wanted to take the flutes and record there. And uh, I also sort of recorded outside and various bits, but I didn't have formal permission to do it. So I, I couldn't do much recording there. And then when I came back, I hooked up with, Dr. Rupert Till at the University of Huddersfield. And he had been into these caves and he'd mapped them properly. It's called impulse response uh, or convolution reverb, where you send a signal into a sound signal into the room and it measures, the computer measures how the room responds. 
and I took the impulse responses that he did and applied that over my flute. So what you're hearing there is what those flutes, my flutes would have sounded like played in exactly those caves in exactly in front of those horse drawings. And the thing that you discover, and maybe I'll play it in just a minute, is that different parts of the cave have very, very different resonances. So I got a, a horse skin drum, which is just over there, and I recorded it in my studio here, and then I played it through these different locations, and then one of them had this huge bass resonance, um, which... So that's just my horse skin drum, but through a particular part. Right. So played in this room, in this Played studio, in this room. But then sent through these impulse... Responses, responses. yes. Yeah, so sort of a computer mapping of what, yeah. of, of a particular horse drawing in a particular cave um, in northern Spain. And the sort of bass that you get off it is really extraordinary. And this was something that, for me, started the whole thing to really come alive then, which is like you're starting to hear real sounds in the way that they would have been heard at the time. You know, you'd have, you start to wonder, well, why do they, do they choose these deliberately because these had these amazing resonance spaces? Or is it just a coincidence? Or am I just adding things onto things that might never have occurred, you know? Yeah, so. yeah. That's really interesting. So, I mean, this project started with your desire to, to buy a skeleton. And the idea was that you would make music with the skeleton. That's the kind of basic premise. Um, but then yeah. the particular skeleton that you bought had an impact on how your thoughts followed. Yeah. Um, and then each section seems to have prompted another response in a way. So just this, that the first instrument that Henry made for you from the bones were these flutes. So, so it's like, right, let's use these flutes. And then you think, what location should I play them in? Where would they be? And, and it's fascinating to see how these each little step triggered the next step. Yeah, and that's it's been a really brilliant project to work on for exactly that. It's every step was unknown. You know, all I knew was that I wanted to end up in electronics and I wanted to work with an orchestra. That's all I knew. So the next track that I did, for example, we went to the, um, we had a recording with the London Contemporary Orchestra and I went there with no music, which for a classical setup is quite, it's not usually done. They're not normally improvisers in this way. And I turned the lights down and I was just really honest with them and I just bought a skeleton. I was like, okay, I want you to try and find a connection between these bones and your instruments because we wouldn't really have, probably have music in the same way if it wasn't for animals. So you know, drums still to this day, some drums are made with the skins of animals. And um, we still use horse hair for bows, for violins and cellos. Um, you know, ivory was on piano keys. And in fact, we made, Henry made me a lyre, which is like a sort of early harp out of the pelvis using sheep gut strings that you can still buy today. So you really, you really have these sort of this very direct and slightly uncomfortable relationship with animals and matter and and all the sort of the blood and guts of it in a way and the sacrifices needed for us to make music so i took those there and i had them make i had them take a, a rib and then and then sort of tie horsehair around it and add rosin which is the sort of thing that violins use to get a bit of friction onto the onto the bow and then start to try and play their instruments and so that's what you hear on track two you start to hear them 
like sort of crudely used there. These these bones were still in the caves as well. Right. Yeah, and what's really great was working with the musicians was that they just, because it was complicated and these bows were very crude, they couldn't play very much. They just sort of played an open string. And actually, so that just evolved. And what happened was that at the end of that piece, um, if I fade it up, move it forward, we just have a sort of... It's the introduction of harmony. It's just a single triad. It's just a single chord. And that becomes... For me, that just becomes representative of a step into harmony. And it's the sort of the first chord in a way. And this just evolved naturally out of working the musicians because you realise they can't play very much. And, and so it's very complicated for them to to play. So they play this thing very simple, but actually out of this sort of weird, scrapey, scratchy thing, a sort of really beautiful harmonic mm. moment. And then I had Shabaka. I'd, I'd work with Shabaka playing the flute. And you think, well, actually, once you've got harmony, then melody can start to occur. And this is Shabaka trying to work out how, what kind of melody you could play. On so this. this is him now. This is can, him, yeah. Maybe we should uh, foreground that in some way and let people hear it properly. So has this gone into the horse's bones of flutes? Yeah. Right. So you're sort of starting to get a kind of... Um, competence or technique or ability you know now in a different part you can't just start the record I thought I was going to start the record a bit like this but actually you can't you know you need to sort of work up to it you know that somebody wouldn't have just picked up a horse leg and be able to play like that yeah you know take years and years of trying to work out what it would have felt like a lot of hours of practice or the kind of time that Shabak has put into working with different types of flutes and things like that yeah because the first sounds we hear on the record are, are kind of crunching sounds. It's just the skeleton. It's just a pile of bones in a cave, right. and it's just me sort of stirring them and saying, OK, let's begin. What are we going to do now? And I think that's... It's been really thrilling for me as an electronic musician to get back to materials, you know, to get back to touching and, like, acoustic noises and thinking about, you know, bone, and they smell a little bit. It's quite sort of visceral, you know, and so much music making is now flat on laptops and plugins and things like that. And um, to sort of go to sort of these weird textures and skins and things and a lot of air, you know, you can hear it in the background, lots of sort of air spit and yeah. smell and things and like it, that. Well, it must yeah. be quite different when you're putting your mouth to the bone. You know, that the musicians must have had some reaction or thought about that. Yeah, I think... Of a sort of hesitancy, but also a spirit of inquiry as well, which are these are musicians and they're used to trying to create wonderful things out of other things. That sounds... I'm not quite sure that's the definition of being a musician, but anyway. <laughs> but I think that sort of curiosity, that's the thing that for me has been really key to the whole thing. So um, 
one of the first sessions I did was with Seb Rochford. And again, I just took the skeleton. I was like, let's just begin. We turned the studio lights down on Hackney Road. And we're just there in this, with this pile of bones. And we talked about it for quite a while. And, and then I just hit record and we like, okay, let's, let's go. And he just started sort of stroking and, and finding different textures and just listening to it and being curious with it. And then out of that came all sorts of different things and ideas that ended up in the record or absorbed into other ways. But it's the sort of act of doing, I think, is really has been really illuminating for me, you know, particularly because I'm really in uncharted territory in terms of material. Like we don't know what happened 30, 45,000 years ago when music was first being made. So we're, we're trying to work it out by doing it rather than by thinking about it. Yeah, so uh, it's fascinating. So, I mean, Seb, being the celebrated drummer and percussionist who's known for being in Polar Bear and many other things, was last mentioned on tape notes uh, for working with James Acaster on his Temps musical project. And so that one session with Seb, the stuff you recorded that day, is that throughout the course of the record then? Yeah, so I used little bits of it, but also it was a sort of discovery and learning process. So I had a, a two-hour session with Shabaka where he just played the flutes. We talked and he just played. I had a similar two-hour session with Seb, um, just with the bones and thinking about the sort of rhythmic qualities and the different sounds we can get from it. And I had a two-hour session with the orchestra where we experimented. And then I took all of that away and then chopped it up and found the bits that I thought worked and then sort of constructed the album from there and then just kept adding bits and, and things on uh, on top of that, inviting other soloists and to take part and and shape it with me. But that sort of R&D phase is really critical for it. I couldn't have done it without without that or without them. So it's really, even though I'm talk, sat here talking to you, it's a properly collaborative experience. Yeah. And yeah. But at the same time, you put that idea before them and asked them to respond yeah. and, and kind of created that situation. It's like, right, this is the flute, Shabaka. Yeah. The, these are the bones, Seb. Yeah. You know, make some kind of drum-type noises. I mean, did he use his normal sticks or did he improvise um twigs we did we did use twigs and i was really interested in that and he he was too he was a brilliant collaborator in that respect and he bought all sorts of things one of the things we really liked was uh, metal chopsticks so he used metal chopsticks to sort of scrape and like bend maybe i can i've got one there let me let me grab one for you yeah so you've reached across the room and You've picked up metal chopstick and you've also <laughs> handily picked up um, the pelvic lyre that was created um, for the project. Yeah, so this, he took a metal chopstick, which is um, this thing, and then sort of... Yeah. It's using a metal tool cheating. Um, yeah, he used... He used other bones use bones on yeah. other bones but this this felt this felt like it particularly good a good one you know sort of exploring all the sort of crevices of the, yeah. of the thing but it's interesting you talk about cheating because that's the sort of area that i end up in where i start to get once you sort of take it seriously you have to and i get a lot of stick for people thinking i'm take things too seriously or what have you. But once you've begun, it's very hard to, if you just then just used a, a plastic yogurt stirrer or something on it, it feels like you're not quite getting the full experience or you're not doing the story justice or you're not following it through in the way that you, that it should be. And so a really good example is this pelvic lyre, which is the pelvis looked like some sort of harp, a lyre, which is the earliest string instrument that mm. we know about. And 
you've got to put strings on it. So what strings do you put on it? Do you put um, metal strings or do you put gut strings, animal gut strings, which were the first ones? So it seemed to make sense to do it. So this is the, um, has four strings on it, which you can tune. But there's some wood on this instrument. There is some, there's some wood at the top to hold it together. And there's actually a little sort of, again, another little animal skin at the bottom, like a little um, drum thing just to, to resonate because the, the pelvis itself doesn't resonate naturally. So it needed like this little amp, little thing to amplify it. But it immediately sounds folky or it immediately, and because of the way the pelvis is, you sort of have to play it on your lap with thumbs. And I was like, well, actually, that feels like... That feels like a chora. So yes. I then approached a chora player called Jali Bakary and asked him to come play. And that's what you hear on the on the next track. You hear... Which is the horse's pelvis is a liar. Yes. And it's an interesting one, this, because as you move through the record this musical evolution or the evolution of music becomes apparent because this is one of the first tracks that you can latch onto as a as a track of what we would identify as a as a piece of music in a way yeah and and also in the sort of narrative storytelling of it we've moved out of the cave now so you can start to hear bird song uh, you can start to hear water and rain we're moving out and this starts to feel like I guess music as a something around something a bit wonderful that where it sounded primitive or scary before or like you're connected to the spirits here the string gives a completely different kind of quality to it it feels more delicate feels more elegant lyrical or beautiful somehow and then and then in the background what you're hearing then is um, Jally then duetting with himself is moved from the from the lyre to his chora. So he started to be able to actually play proper melodies in a properly strung, resonant instrument that's taken many thousands of years to evolve or to refine or whatever it might be. So you're sort of hearing music evolve in real time at the same time you're moving out of the cave. And you're starting to starting to sort of blur the lines of where the horse is because the minute you're on the chora, you're off the horse. You know, you're not playing a horse instrument anymore. And this is a problem that we've got in the live show, actually. When we start to present it in the live show, the minute we move on to our real instruments, the horse is forgotten a little bit, becomes a pile of bones again. So we're working with a couple of actors or people to be on stage to work, to keep the bones active or to keep telling that story of the horse whilst we hear that kind of musical evolution. And this sort of sense of optimism, you know. Of, and we know how it's going to end, which is we're all going to die. So you know it's... <laughs> and we know we're going to mess it up. We know we're going to fuck up the world. And we know we're going to, you know, 
going to kill vast amount of animals to eat and to and, and all the rest of it so it's but this is sort of moment of optimism if you like and then we're sort of now moving into the next track where it starts to be um start to think about mechanization really starting to think about two things at the same time it's one is mechanization so starting to hand control of the musicality to a machine to outsource it and the other one is amplification as well starting to sort of distort the signal a, a, a bit so i worked with sam underwood and graham dunning who are two instrument makers in the north of england and they built this thing called the mammoth beat organ which is a giant modular acoustic instrument that sort of like you can play uh, drum and bass or you can play techno on it or what have you but it's all done mechanically and it's driven by an electric motor and I asked them to make me like a bone tombola that could sort of we had all the small bones like for the tail and things like that so we could try and agitate those slightly but also to create this rhythm so you can hear it this sort of ch- So these are uh, vertebrae, these are vertebrae bones um, that are strapped to the machine and then just played with different beaters or played with other bones or, or whatever. But this is, the beaters are human operated or they're part of this machine that was created? So the machine is going and the beaters are on the machine and then we're offering up these vertebrae and rotating them to try and get different sounds right. out of them. So by using a machine, we're starting to be able to find more expression and to keep the pulse going. And it's sort of got this sort of quite nice hypnotic quality and we're starting to, as a, as a consequence, you're starting to feel the beginnings of rhythm emerging, you know, and that sort of sense of then it becomes, start, this is called the horse is prepared. And it starts to feel ritualistic, you know. And then there, this is me playing a flute, but put through an auto-tune. So this is sort of, we're starting to bend different technologies. Yeah coming together. But this, this sort of, this sense of rit- ritual, you know, we've now got these bones, we've now got this, we've had music as a kind of beautiful thing. We're now in this space where music, okay, well, what function can we put this music to? We've got melody, we've got, melody, we've got rhythm, we've got harmony now. What purpose might this serve? This is, in a way, really where the record starts to start, because it's a, it's about a kind of a ritual, and the ritual ends up bringing the horse back to life. Or that's the that's the theory of it, at least. already moving through millennia I think yeah, it's in quite, just a few minutes yeah in just a few minutes which is incredible so you know we've started in a cave we started with you know a, a kind of a younger man <laughs> in a way um, uh, you know the early 
early humanity. Um, but now, you, I mean, you're talking about industrialization already, yeah. possibly, but that's yeah. maybe just around the corner. But yeah. the idea of, you know, with the horse is prepared, you're, you're, you're treating your knowledge um, in a slightly different way. You no, know, so this, this thing that we've watched evolve, music, um, is evolving too as humanity changes and society changes. And you're trying to work out how this is reflected in the skeleton of the horse and how that has been brought into use for creativity in a way. Um, yeah. yeah, and and also for, uh, it's impossible as well when you start to do that to not then talk about the story of exploitation, you know, the point at which, wow, if we harness um, animal bodies and animal parts, um, we can make extraordinary things like music, but of course, that starts to impact everything, every other aspect of, of human endeavor in terms of our rapacious appetite to consume and destroy. Um, and the violence of it is absolutely extraordinary, really. And we're about, you know, we're on the cusp musically, we're on the cusp of the industrial revolution in a way. We're starting, we're thinking about mechanization and in a couple of tracks time, it's called The Horse is Put to Work and it sort of starts and actually you can almost hear it in, well, I would hope that you can almost hear it in the music, that sense of, wait a minute, if I could do this, then I can do that. And if I can do that, then I can do that. And, and you know, you look at, for example, um, carbon emissions, you know, they just absolutely go through the roof um, around the time of the Industrial Revolution. They're almost flat until the Industrial Revolution. And you wouldn't have the Industrial Revolution without horses. So at the time of the Industrial Revolution in, in Britain, there was one horse for every 13 people. And it touched every aspect of your life from delivering things like the post, delivering food, plowing fields, uh, hauling coal up from the mines, um, taking stuff to the steam trains. It's, horses are absolutely everywhere. We absolutely relied on them. And our cities are designed by the muses, um, all the muse blocks and stables that are still there for and the way um, the bends in the roads and, and the narrowness and how things are all set up for, for horses at Paddington Station, for example, there's so many horses needed that they had to make like a horse, three multi-story horse car park that you can still see, they're still part of it, you can still see there. And things like the tunnels, you know, tunnels underneath rivers, they had to put bends in them so that the horses, when they spotted the lights, didn't bolt for the, for the other side. So the fact that some of our tunnels have bends in are due to horses. So it's like the it's completely formed our modern world actually the horse so even though i accidentally bought this horse actually it's it's revealing itself by sort of beginning this process for me actually revealed this vast interconnected story about uh not just a metaphor for how we destroy or exploit the environment but actually um a carrier of that and in the same way, I'm doing the same thing. I'm exploiting it in a, in a different way, hopefully in a more positive and generous way, but it's still in a form of exploitation. And so it's sort of, I like working like this because it's all just a series of steps. And just a, you start off with a question at the beginning and then you just follow it through to its inevitable conclusion. And you just sort of take whatever needed to go on that, on that route. Yeah, really interesting. So, I mean, we go from the horses prepared then there are, there's the horse is quiet and the horse is submerged, which we should just have a little, just yeah. a little taste of, so that we'll continue the, the explanation. So this is the horse is quiet. 
And this is where, this is kind of a sort of orchestral moment. It's like where the musicians have, have mastered their instruments. It's actually pitched down three or four octaves, so it's quite odd and slowed right down as well. So it's stretched and feels odd. You, you'd struggle to play this in real life. But what it is, in a way, it's a, it's a moment of reflection, which is sort of a lament really for this period that's that's gone because what's coming is going to be horrible so this is <laughs> this in a way this is the sort of horse lamenting what could have been you know one of my favorite bits of the record was recording outside the caves in northern spain and i was recording at the entrance because i thought that would be useful um and there was a cowbell like bang, 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 and i was like so annoyed because I was like, I'm making a horse record, not a cow record. <laughs> like, please be quiet. And it just wouldn't stop. And, I, and I've done this enough now to just go, okay, I'll record it and then just deal with it later and think about how it might fit or how it might work. And then I spent three hours looking at these horse paintings in the caves. And then when I came out and drove off down the hill, it got louder and louder, the cowbell. And I looked over and it was a huge horse standing there with a cowbell around its neck, looking at me, just going... Huh? What about me? And then I just realised that the horses I'd been looking at in the caves were free. And here we are, 25, 10, well, I don't know, somewhere between 10,000 and 25,000 years later, and the horses aren't free. They weren't free. There isn't a single wild horse left in the world. Every, what we would call a wild horse, is from a genetic line that had been domesticated at some stage. It's a, it was a really moving and sad moment to realise, actually, we've we've enslaved all these animals in a way. So that's what this, right. um, this is where this bit of the record is about, sort of lament for that kind yeah. of thing. And then that goes into the horses submerged. And this I worked with a really interesting um, musician called Lee Patterson, uh, he does things like set fires to peanuts and mics them up and you can hear all the oils cook and they sort of scream and things like that. And I was really interested in like really the sort of real materials of it. So I sent him some bones like the patella and the, and the neck bones and things like that. And this is him forcing air through that. So this is another sort of form of air being forced through it. At the same time, my wife is washing the bones. It's sort of like a preparation, you know, again, of something's coming, you know. And bearing in mind, I'm trying to bring the horse back to life through music. Again, this is part of the preparation and things. And at the same time, we've got Evan Parker playing, who is an extraordinary sort of jazz legend of this country uh, from the older generation, sort of free improviser, came to the studio and just played and it's the sort of yearning or this, I don't think it's fully articulated on the record and that's deliberate, but the sense that these soloists are somehow the spirit of the horse a little bit. So if I go back and you can hear it. So if you imagine the sort of the very like Shabaka playing, this is now, a much more complicated bit of technology that Evan's playing a soprano sax and it's he's carrying on that flame if you like of some kind of spirit or some uh, yeah of the horse I didn't want it to be too explicit because I think it's 
I don't think it's that helpful in the storytelling and it's not I'm trying to represent it in a different way but it's still it's still there yeah. nonetheless and then now it's sort of now that now it's really started to pick up in the background you can hear riot police on horseback you can hear military horses on parade you can hear pit ponies um, you can, that's a hunting horn stretched out these are all put together by um, a sound designer called Ella Kay who um, is an all-round award winner a young um, sound designer again sort of trying to make it as collaborative as possible sort of share some of these responsibilities this was the hardest piece to to write on the record and one that I, I wrote five, six, seven times and actually even after the record was finished I went back and and, and reworked it because we had a real problem here which was that up until now it's been really exploratory and free but actually now that now that drum machine's taken over now it's in the computer it's fixed it's not free it doesn't it doesn't have that kind of um, looseness or that sense of materials to play with and it's just like dance music just gonna make people dance for it you know yeah so this is the horses put to work but so this track ends up carrying a, a heavy load in in a way of in terms of ideas because yeah. you're trying, I mean, what you've already described, you're trying to illustrate the various different ways that the horse has been put to work, very much from a human perspective. So if you've got, you know, soldiers or policemen or you know, on horseback doing something to other people, controlling them, yeah. um, you know, that's a very different dimension, isn't it? It really is. And we sort of, in a way, sort of losing sight of the horse a little bit. And you're starting to tell the story about human and human exploitation, exactly what you're describing. So it got very tricky. And so in the end, I, I rewrote this and made it much wilder and sort of free. Um, one of the things that I did was I, I took the flutes and uh, Sam Underwood's and Graham Dunning's amazing machine that I had earlier also has an electric motor that pumps air through some organ pipes and I took the organ pipes off and we put the flutes on instead. So you're forcing air through the, the flutes and they're able you to play them without having to need to take a breath. So it allowed this kind of wildness. Um, so these are the horse this, flutes? That, yeah, these yeah. are the horse flutes back in. So they're really like, woo, woo, don't forget us. Woo, woo, woo. <laughs> um, this kind of thing. And it's just sort of sort of churning on and and sort of consuming. And, and these are still horse um, the kick drum is made out of the horse skin drum that we heard at the very beginning in the cave. And the percussion is all the horse bones. There's no snares, there's no hi-hats, there's no drum machine noises. Um, it's just, it's still all horse, but it's all being put in the computer and, and controlled electronically. But it's a real battle to try and keep that sense of exploration or freedom. But also, you know, also there's that thing as well of an expectation of being in the 21st century and people wanting piece of music they can dance to yeah. or that, that you know I'm aware that I'm also come from a dance music background and there's people that follow me that want me to make that kind of music and I'm releasing a record and the record company has certain expectations of how it could be used and so I was like oh should I be making a dance you know like I don't is it appropriate to dance to this and but also the record's about rhythm you know I wanted to keep it moving forwards and so it's really like a kind of uh, it was a real struggle 
and I'm happy with it. And actually this whole end section, which I'll jump to here. It's all quite wild. I ended up writing this during the, the um, on the screen I had the World Cup final playing at the time. <laughs> and this was like the last sort of 15 minutes of the World Cup final going from one end of the other, from um, France to Argentina and following Mbappe and stuff like that on his runs with this, and I standing up and just trying to sort of get life and try and sort of get some energy into it because it just, the computer just killed it, sucked all the energy out of it in a way. And it's a really complicated way of writing because you don't know whether you're, you don't know whether you're trying, exactly what you described, you don't know whether you're trying to describe the human part of it or hold on to the horse bit, or you trying to show, because we've been really exploitative um, but it's also given us pleasure as well. People form very strong bonds with horses and feel they have a strong connection to them. And they're used in, um, they're used as therapy now for uh, veterans and things like that. And so you sort of want to, that, that idea of trying to find pleasure, but also describe something violent and things and all the other pressures of it. And it gets really blurry around this point. From here on, it's fine. I, I can solve the rest of it, but it's, Definitely sort of murky ground, I think, here, yeah, um, yeah. thematically and musically. Really interesting. I think we should hear another little bit of the wildness. Yeah. Um, and I've got another question about that, and then we'll have, have a little break. That's all the flutes still in. Yeah, effect. that's me. That's me playing it at the very end, just to sort of like, like, just don't forget the horse, don't forget the horse, don't forget the horse, you know. Right. And one of the, whenever I got stuck, one of the sort of things that I, questions I would keep coming back to is like, what would the horse want? And I'll come back to that later when we get to the next bit. Because there's an interesting sort of something happened in a little while that was that really challenged me about that. You know, if I if these were my bones, what would I? What would I want? That's you know? an interesting question. Yeah. Um, I did wonder, so, I mean, this is an effect with the horses put to work. You know, it turns into a dance number. Yeah. Um, and, I mean, you still DJ. No, you, you still make all sorts of music. Would you play some of these more dancey pieces within a, a DJ set? Because they would work. Because the interesting thing is, having started at the cave, yeah. you know, and we hear uh, the the bones in the cave and people start to make instruments. and, and But one of the first impressions we have or thoughts we have about our ancestors making music together is dancing yeah and so when you then put your you know turn your horse drum into a steady four to the floor beat that may be 21st century but it's also yeah um 30,000 bc or whatever. yeah yeah exactly and i think that that sense of rhythm is really important and, you know, for a long time, I thought that the only definition I could think of about music was rhythm. Like, it's not until you put one sound after another sound that you create music. Like, one sound on its own would struggle to be music. I don't particularly buy this definition, by the way, now, but this was what I thought for a while. But I do think that sense of one thing after another, you know, I do think that music is 
um, just the manipulation of time or it's the stretching of time or it's the it's a representation of time because it's invisible and you're you're dealing with durations and how it's all put together and so time is just a form of rhythm you know and so I, I do think that that rhythm takes you right back there but I it was really interesting which was that when I made the record you couldn't just start with rhythm like you couldn't just start with dancing it didn't feel like it didn't feel like that was it felt too strange a place to be in and when you were at the start it felt too odd to then just immediately go okay let's have a dance you know it yeah. felt like it, it felt like it needed to just be like what the fuck like if I was a musician and I just blown through a horse's leg and I heard that noise I'd be like what the fuck <laughs> where what am I doing am I am I in touch with something extraordinary in it in some ways it helps explain why I think musicians and music is still held in such high esteem um uh, you know even today that it's because it's somehow invisible you're controlling some kind of invisible force and you're you're able to change the room just with something invisible it does still have that magic quality it has that sort of mystical quality i think and it's still present fascinating we're going to take a break and then we'll come back and and hear about these other challenges uh, <laughs> that you are faced with and how you managed to record all this stuff yeah. uh, we return to the horse in just a moment you may have heard us talk about Tape It before, and if you haven't, then let me fill you in, as they are the sponsor of today's episode with a fantastic offer for you. Tape It is an iPhone recording app made by musicians for musicians. Many of our guests on Tape Notes, music industry friends and listeners rely on voice notes to record their early ideas. People like the Lumineers, Ezra Collective and Fred again have all shared recordings with us made on voice notes. But what you wouldn't have heard are the long pauses where they're searching for those recordings. We wouldn't want to put you through that. As you can understand, organising and finding the right notes, let alone a specific part, can be a nightmare. Tape It solves all of that voice memo chaos with intuitive labelling features, including automatic instrument detection, markers and collaborative mixtapes, meaning you can share band practices, organise set lists and brainstorm ideas with co-writers and band members. Plus, you can record straight from your lock screen and attach text and photo notes to each recording. One of our favourite features within Tape It Pro is that you can record in stereo using two microphones along with gentler dynamic compression to give a much more natural sound than any of the usual apps. It's a huge upgrade to the microphone and all-round audio quality. It really helps support the podcast whenever you engage with our sponsors. So if Tape It sounds like an app you'd use, then do us a favour. Pause the episode, head to the link in a recent episode show notes, or visit tape.it forward slash tape notes and give Tape It a go. That's tape.it forward slash tape notes. You can download for free or use the promo code tape notes for 50% off Tape It Pro. Thank you. And now on with the show. Did you do it? Honestly, Tape It is fantastic. All of the Tape Notes team members are complete converts. And excitingly, some of our guests have started to use it as well. So I really would recommend checking it out. So we are still here in Matthew Herbert's studio in this extraordinary part of Kent. And it's an extraordinary complex that you're based in. And it's it's lovely because we've got so much light in here. And uh, it's spacious and you're surrounded by artwork and surrounded by... A whole variety of different technological equipment, musical and electronic. And yeah, it's amazing. And we're exploring The Horse, which is, of course, this album that you've just put out with the London Contemporary Orchestra. Now, we're halfway through the 
telling of this story. And um, the story continues with the next piece is The Rider, Not the Horse, which kind of continues this whole dance element. So maybe we'll just hear a bit of that and then you can explain where we are. This is like the straightest bit on the record. By this point, everybody can play their instruments. Um, Everybody's in control, or maybe it's an illusion of control, but here the human's fully in charge in a way. And this is is a kind of a human-centric track, which is why it starts with the rider and brackets, not the horse in in the title. And it's sort of about, it's almost a slightly kind of cliched feeling of what a horse offers supposedly offers people which is a sense of freedom so this is a sort of piece of music in a way to someone need to ride a horse down a beach at sunset kind of thing <laughs> um and it's just this the, the sort of horse is almost invisible at this point i mean we're still it's still its bones so the percussion like it's still still there and the, the bass drum is still the horse skin drum that we heard in the cave at the very beginning and the orchestra's really they can play their instruments and there's a sort of freedom to it, or there's a sort of illusion of freedom. But it's very much a kind of, it's very much about a moment of pleasure, I think, but a, a sort of human pleasure. Um, so my particular horse, I know very, very little about my particular horse, um, Skeleton. Um, I know that it was uh, a mare, a female, and I know that it's from Europe, and I know that it was a horse that was raced. So it's a thoroughbred horse. And all thoroughbreds, come from traced back to two stallions so no matter what thoroughbred horse it is in the world they can be traced back genetically to these two stallions so it's from a long line of horses that are bred for racing and it's an extraordinarily weird and dark thing horse racing actually it's the number two sport in this country after football Um, it's subsidized by 100 million pounds every year which is an extraordinarily extraordinarily large figure. You know. Where does that money come from? Um, it comes from a tax break given to horse owners. Right. And um, and so it's, you know, when you think about the money that the, the arts has to battle for, and yet we're subsidising horse racing by 100 million quid, and and there's somewhere between 150 and 300 horses a year killed at horse um, race events. And a decision is made there and then on the spot whether that horse is economically viable or not, even if it's just twisted its ankle. If it's out for six months or what have you, then it won't earn its keep. And it's, and um, I mean, I don't want to, I don't want to make things up. So I, I'm, I'm not exactly sure about the injuries involved that relates to that, but it's still a huge, you know, that's a mm. huge figure of the number of horses killed just for being economically un, unviable. And in fact, the track after this that follows immediately, it's called The Truck That Follows the Horses, and it's about exactly about that. So I went to a horse race um, in Chepstow um, as part of the research for this record, and you can hear, the, you can hear that um, sounds from that race course at the beginning of this track, and the, the bell, it sort of rings, the, the bell rings, ding, 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 and then the track starts properly, and that's the, that's the bell that sets, you, sets the, the horses off and things. 
And this, every race that goes on, there is a couple of trucks that follow the horses. One is an ambulance for the for the jockey if it gets hurt. One is like a nice Land Rover if the if the jockey falls off but isn't hurt. And like, and there's another one which is a pickup truck with two slightly edgy blokes looking in it with a big tarpaulin in the back and a shotgun. And their job is just to erect these screens around the horse and then shoot the horse and deal with the body um, sort of there. And then, so the rider, not the horse, really is just that moment of it seems to be beautiful. It seems to be freedom. It seems to express something, but but we don't really, it's not really the full story. And something really dark as well about the horse doesn't really see any of the winnings. Like the money doesn't necessarily mean anything to it. Obviously, it's cared for a great deal by the groomers, and there's a lot of love goes into the care for them as well. But it's a very strange thing, you know. You don't really see, I don't know, monkeys riding around on the back of giraffes, or you don't really see dolphins on the back of whales. You know, it's we're just sort of climbing on board another animal and 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 then running really fast down a thing. And of course, there's things like whips involved and. If you're talking about uh, other forms of man on a horse, there's spurs, and then there's these bits, these big metal bits that are put between their teeth and in the background, sort of the shaker things like chick, 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 chick. These are made out of these metal bits that, that are put between the teeth. And so there's a lot of, as with everything that humans do, there's often inevitably a dark side. So this is that kind of moment of supposed transcendence before we, we then find ourselves inevitably in the darker bit of it. Right, and with the string section, and uh, presumably you wrote that music for them to play. You know? Yeah. So, and you wanted to create that feel. Yeah. So it's really conscious by this point, you know, and and also we're a very long way from a flute in the in a in a cave, from a bone in a cave. We're a very long way from the crude bow for the violin made out of rib and sort of basic horsehair, and then trying to even just get one note of that out of it. Now it's sort of a, almost like a fully evolved state, what we might imagine to be a fully evolved state. But it's also this state of almost stasis as well. You know, the, the baseline doesn't change. It's one note apart from for two bars. So it's just this kind of suspension in a way. It's almost like a suspension of disbelief or a suspension of reality or a suspension of history somehow that just for this moment, it's, it, we just have this moment of me riding into the distance on a on this imaginary horse somehow. Yeah. So, I mean, in terms of sound, um, what, what should we listen to next as the story evolves? Um, the next track is called The Horse's Winnings, and this is made by a, a sort of technique that I developed over a number of years of layering things on top of each other. So everything is a loop, and it's just stacked up on top of each other. And for this, Again, I collaborated with the orchestra. I, I wrote some very simple figures for them and then got them to improvise sounds in front of the microphone one at a time. And we looped them there and then in the studio. So they'd be playing on top of what our, one of their colleagues was was making. And it's this idea of accumulation, you know, accumulation of shit, basically. So, and we have all sorts of things in here. So I've got money, Irish money from the 60s that has horses printed on it. Um, I've got a load of horse trophies um, that making noise here. Seb uh, Rochford and also Edward Wakili Hick from the Not Cultural Ensemble. The two of them are a, a looping percussion on top made out of these horseshoes. Again, the chains and the bits between their teeth and things. Um, and I also I bought a uh, cement mixer, which is just behind you over there. 
and, <laughs> and and again it's just this idea of sort of churn of the sort of cycle of mechanizing of this sort of rolling thing and so put loads of these objects in there and and uh, you know a, a little while ago I was talking about what would the horse wants well initially I bought the uh, I bought the cement mixer to put the horse's bones in or some of the bones in because I sort of liked this idea of this weird dry tumbling thing the worst sound I ever heard was a, a cremulator in a crematorium so a cremulator is when a body's burned in a crematorium you're left with some bones not all of it bones in the sort of hour and a half that they burn the body so they take the bones and they put them in a cremulator which is like a dry washing machine but with graphite or strong stones so it's just stones and bones going around in a washing machine it's one of the most awful sounds you'll ever hear and those bones are ground down into dust and that's what they give you in an urn so it's just those few bones because obviously if they scraped out of the oven it would be you and a million other people yeah so that's what you get from there so i so i got this um cement mix and the idea was to put the bones in and this sort of recreate a bit of this churn of like uh this relentless sort of exploitation and things particularly for the horse who's been racing all these whips and running all these races and not seeing anything out of it so i started to put the bones in it was just over there and then as i did it i stepped off and i twisted my ankle so badly i sort of yelled in pain and I had to sort of lie down for a few hours and just so much pain caused by it and it really I know I'm straying into hippie territory here I totally get that but it did also feel that it was like the horse saying don't do that you know like show some respect or what have you it's like is this the right thing to be doing you know and um so I took all the bones out and I just left it as man-made things of like all these coins and this sort of tumbling thing and uh it's all quite hard not to feel um like this wasn't some kind of pagan magical fantastical spiritual experience this whole thing because just things happened along the way all sorts of strange things happened and then one of the best things that happened about the time that i was i, I was doing that um, there was a metal detector guy who had been trying to get on our land because we live in this very old bit of Kent. And he tried to get on our land. The Romans landed not far from here and things. And he wanted to do some metal detecting. I'd put him off for at least two years. And eventually I said, OK, fine, you can come. Um, within an hour, he dug up a little Bronze Age horse, um, like wow. an offering to a horse god, which is the cover of the... Amazing. And um, you're handing it to me now. Fantastic. So I, mean, I did wonder album. where the cover of the album came from. So this is actually from your back garden, in effect. It's, it's, it's about, you know, it's about 20 metres from my studio that, that was dug wow. up. And it's incredibly old, little, extraordinary bronze representation of a horse, like a horse offering. And um, quite a few things like this happened along the way where you sort of, and it's really hard when you're standing in a studio like this, I've got, as you described, there's windows on every side. You can hear the turkeys gobbling that we've got down there. There's peacocks outside. There's guinea fowl. There's chickens. There's barn owls over there. There's sheep just behind us. You're standing there banging a, a very large horse skin drum, and it's got this amazing resonance in the studio, and you're blowing through the horse. And actually, it felt at times like a, a kind of a summoning, or it felt like you were engaged in some felt connected to the way that people used to think about i presume people used to think about music it felt like that so there's a there even though i i have a propensity to lean that way slightly anyway in terms of 
a spiritual dimension or divine intervention or or you know i think most artists do you know dh lawrence said when talking about his writing it's me and the wind that blows through me you know like i mean you know this from speaking to musicians if you ask people where did a song come from they will tell you it just arrived yeah you know it just came and the best the best songs arrive fully formed and very very quickly you know um the tracks of mine that um so cafe de floor um the audience um as herbert maloko remix that sing it back that i did the sort of ones the three or four tracks that people listen to the most are ones that i wrote in an hour and a half from start to finish you know that just came that just arrived and so there is always this sort of spiritual dimension about writing music or creating something like this but it was particularly eerie in this project you know just to find like this little bronze age horse or to be involved in stirring the bones somehow and seeing what seeing what came out yeah it's amazing how it all seems to resonate and connect together no yeah and it i think it's um i think it's impossible when you're not work, when you're working with materials in that way when it's really like hands-on stuff but there also there's a very sort of high-tech element to this as well which is like we're now really in sort of experimental recording techniques as well particularly with the orchestra so it's really important for me that as part of the process of trying to describe music the evolution of music technology that i'm trying to push things along myself and try and be into areas that i haven't been in before so for example at the end of this track there is 6900 horses um, sounds scraped from the internet by uh, matthew yee king at goldsmith university and dan jones um, and using machine learning to go and learn what a horse might sound like and then go and scrape them and steal them from the from the internet so at the end of this piece, it's just part of the... I'll, I'll play a little part of it. Just here, you now got layer upon layer upon layer and layer of stuff, like all the improvisation done with the musicians, done with the percussionists, plus you've got the... You've got the um, cement mixer going round, and then you've got 6,900 horses stolen from the internet. And, and by... By scraped from the internet, but just sounds found on there, connected to horses, and just accumulated into so yeah. So so you're using systems that know roughly what a horse trained to know what a horse roughly sounds like, and then it it goes and searches the internet from videos and takes little bits right um, from videos. Oh, that sounds a bit like a horse. That sounds a bit like a horse, and you have to sift through it. Sometimes you get like a car that sounds a bit like a horse, <laughs> or someone laughing that sounds a bit horsey. Right. And um, it's a technique I've been working on for a couple of years and used on a film. And um, it's fascinating that you can pull together these giant numbers of sounds and just mm. and layer them all up. I did a piece with 20,000 dogs, for example, that was done this way. Wow. So you're, you're sort of really, uh, you know, really sort of pushing the technology as, as well here. And that sort of felt important to me. It's almost, almost at that exact point, though, like just as we're sort of becoming overwhelmed with the sort of technology of it and also... As a composer, I'm being slightly seduced by all of that and the the noise and the overwhelmingness of it. Then we find ourselves suddenly like the horse is back in a way, and we hear it's called the horse has a voice, and you hear it sort of go like, and it's sort of sped up and slowed down, and so a lot of the noises are taken from the horses. The first time we hear a voice, and it's a bit like it's sort of like a birth, like it's sort of like weird, weird sort of freaky noises. But it's it's the sense of like it's not here yet. The horse isn't here yet. But like 
the horse is like, don't forget about me, you know, here I am. And then it's really sort of rich, ritualistic and things. Um, and I wrote this piece, we recorded it with orchestra, and then, and then I brought in Theon Cross, incredible tuba player, to come in. He was the sort of number one choice for me, so I was thrilled that he would say, that he said yes, and he sat down and, and this bum, 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 bum. I sort of pretty much gave him that. And then from there, he just went, just went off, went yeah. off in a way that I've, I very, you know, you very rarely hear musicians of that skill and that caliber. But it was also visceral, and it was also everybody in the studio was just had their jaws on the floor, and just but. And that thing that I said if, a, a little while ago about the, sort of, the kind of embodying the spirit of the horse in a way, it's a sort of counter to Shabaka. So Shabaka's blowing through and is a sort of soloist in a way, like, which we thought might be the, as I was saying, might be the spirit of the horse, but that's maybe too, that's going too far or maybe that's not right or that's not quite what we're doing. But here there's that, there is that sense, you know. And there's this really great bit at the end where he's like... <laughs> So this is all part of the horse has a voice. Yeah. So here, towards the end, you hear, this is part of the tuba. It's really animalistic, sort of yeah. really animalistic stuff. Um, I don't know if I've got the horses themselves here. Um, oh, horse noises. Here we go. So this is a horse. Are these manipulated? Yeah, yeah. So this is slowed down. It, like I was saying, the horse isn't here yet. If the, as soon as you have this voice it's in full effect, then it's present. And it's not in the sort of ritualistic narrative of the story of the, of the project. It's not here yet. It's, it's, it's on its way. Because we should remind ourselves that part of the whole goal is to bring this horse back to life somehow so from the skeleton back to a, a living breathing creature yeah and this was almost an accident actually and this took a very long time to work out it sounds really obvious when or simple when you say it like that but actually it took a lot to work that out so i ended up employing um kirsty housley who's a dramaturg and works with complicite um very well respected theater company in the uk that did known for the encounter which was the binaural piece at the barbican and a movement director called Imogen Knight, who um, works at the National and did the movement for Chernobyl and things. And the three of us talked a lot about, and there's maps here about like, what is it? Because we started to write other records about humans controlling nature. Oh, it's about horse racing. No, it's not. It's about work. No, it's about, it's about prehistoric times. No, it's not. It's about climate change. No, you know, all these things. It just got really complicated. But actually what happened was, if you follow the music technology, which is when we started the record, you just hear me stir some bones and blowing through its legs. Actually, if you follow the music technology journey, what happens was that at some point in the 20th century, um, microphones were in common use and tape machines, and then of course, computers and samplers. And we can now make music out of real horses. So just by following the technology, you go from a pile of bones to a real, the ability to hear a real horse. So actually that was in a way led by the technology, that thing, but then of that sort of part of the story. But then of course it makes perfect sense in the, you know, you're, it's ritualistic. And then hopefully along the way, you can tell all the stories we wanted to talk about, about the past and about climate change and industrialization and exploitation. 
and so on but you're just you're just accumulating these things in a logical progression of this this one follows this and so on yeah yeah i should point out that i mean you you were known for so many different things but um for electronic exploration i mean what we do here on on take notes is often people go into their stems and dig out tiny noises and show how they manipulated them but that's so much part of your overall work that it it almost seems kind of superfluous to go in and zero in on that detail because it's such a given i think <laughs> with with what you do um i think it's because it's um it's why I wrote a manifesto a few years ago. It's such a revolution in music. Nobody talks about it as a revolution. And it sort of drives me nuts a bit because it's it's fundamentally changed the very materials of music. So music used to be a form of impressionism. You know, you want to make a piece of music about a horse. You try to use an instrument to make horse noises, whereas now we can make it out of a horse. Or you, can, you literally can think of anything. I can make it out of the dam bursting in the Ukraine, or I could make it out of my pair of slippers that I'm wearing, or I could make it out of um, Colonel Gaddafi's pencil case. You know, it's like literally just anything. Yeah. And you think of what that means then, like if, you know, because that changes everything, like music's then a form of sort of documentary, and then it brings with it all sorts of philosophical um, debates. So I was, uh, I had a gig with Danny Siciliano and Phil Parnell when it was the three of us in New York on September the 11th at the Knitting Factory. And the gig didn't happen, obviously, but, you know, like everybody there, we thought we were going to die. So I recorded the recordings and I've got, I recorded the day as it went on and accidentally, I guess, and recorded one of the Twin Towers collapsing from the roof of our, our hotel just a few blocks away. And, you know, that can now be turned into music, you know, and what are the ethical questions around that should i be turning into that music that feels that doesn't feel right something doesn't feel right about that but why doesn't it feel right you know we've seen we've seen the images millions and millions of times of the buildings planes going in we've seen millions of deaths every child has seen millions of murders or whatever that statistic is by the time they're 20 you know it's so we're used to that but we're not used to it with sound we haven't had recorded sound in the same length so it's such a profound revolution about what music is and how to use it, that it feels like um, that fundamental shift doesn't feel acknowledged enough in a way. And actually it's a huge gift to musicians. And they're just, even though I'm surrounded by guitars and double basses here and kotos and all and pianos and things, all instruments that I love and I still love orchestral, but it's not where the cutting edge of music is. That's not the front line of music, I don't think. I think it's literally in sound and the capacity for, to tell stories and things and to sort of engage with the world directly on some of the on the matters that are really important to us and i think that's particularly key at a time of crisis as i was saying to you earlier like Naomi klein says the only thing that we have to do to destroy ourselves is to do nothing you know the status quo is what's killing us you know this the system that we've built has doing the wrong thing and designed to do the wrong thing at the wrong time so for me music should take an active part and trying to provide an alternative, to provide a critique, to offer alternatives, to tell stories, to to just engage and be part of that struggle, if you like. Because otherwise, if not, we're just like the Titanic. We're just the musicians as the whole thing goes. You know, we're just making it bearable yeah. as the whole thing sinks beneath the waves. And maybe I'm just 
too much of an old Marxist, but I, you know, I want <laughs> I want revolution. I want the Tories out. You know, I want Brexit reversed. I want justice. You know, and I want equality, and I want um, environmental justice, and I want a new society, and I want I want people to be treated fairly and equally, and I want people to be paid properly, and and I want clean water that hasn't got poo in it. You know, these aren't radical suggestions, but you know, music I think has lost a bit of that fight that punkiness of that spirit to try and take on these bigger issues because it's it's hard to sing about poo in the water you know it's not sexy <laughs> not and that's what in a way sound allows you to do is it allows you to take part in those stories and frees you from having to write a lyric about poo you know you can actually go and record the beaches and that becomes a political act or you can record um, outside the bosses of the water companies or you can record the number of cars they've got in their driveway or whatever. So um, so I think that sound un unlocks a way to engage with the world that I think is really extraordinary. Like Rilke talks about, uh, the poet, Austrian poet Rilke talks about the first time he heard a, a record and talks about it's a new texture of reality. You know, his mind was blown when he, when he made a crude record. You know, it's a new texture of reality and that's what sound is and can be and for a musician to be able to bend it and to work with it and use it as a material sculpturally, I think is so compelling and so such a non-brainer, no-brainer that it feels, I find it quite strange that I'm, there's not many of us doing it in a way. Like it's not my thing. It's all of our things, you know? Yeah. Yeah. And potentially everybody who listens to tape notes yes. takes these ideas from artists like yourself and, Runs away with them and and explores them and and extrapolates them and creates things, uh, taking some of these approaches, which I think listening to you would be very inspirational. Well, I I would love them to do that. One of my favourite things to think about is the piano, which is the Thelonious Monk had exactly the same instrument as Mozart, but it took sort of two hundred two hundred fifty years to play jazz on the instruments. Like it took that long for our imagination to work out what we could do on the piano. So, like, imagine what we can do in 200 years with that we haven't even thought about with this new technology. So I love that idea of being able to jump. So I'd love listeners to be able to think, well, if you can make it out of anything, let's go. Like, what's it going to be? You know, and that's yeah. a huge question. That's a huge question that I'm still trying to answer. Yeah. And it's interesting that just a, a tiny piece of sound can touch on so many different aspects of life and the world yeah. and humanity and uh, yeah, 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 yeah and the way that you use it so i mean we've had the horse as a voice there's just three sections now to to the horse as the story unfolds so as there are just three sections i think this is an opportune moment to take a quick break before we um, find out all about them with matthew so now matthew we're going to look at the last section of the album the last three uh, tracks is that how you think of them uh songs pieces I'm not really sure yeah i'm happy yeah. whatever you want yeah yeah well the last three parts of of the horse album i suppose and and this is really just about the horses now sort of coming now right we're sort of getting to the end like we've whipped ourselves into quite a frenzy in the the previous track and it's just going to get faster and faster from here so we have one last sort of human moment where the orchestra sort of takes it upon themselves to sort of try and get themselves into the, the spirit. There's no real horse or living horse noises in it. It's just this sort of relentless, like, sort of... This is the horse remembers. This is the horse remembers, yeah. And it's like, it's sort of, a, it's almost like a feeling, like something's approaching. 
And there's a there's a bit in it that is What do you think that is? You're never gonna you're never gonna guess. Yeah, so it's not no a trick. Idea. It's not a trick. Well no, but what do you think that might what does that make you think of? That's that's a better question. It makes me think that I'm in a stairwell and I'm bouncing a ball or something against the stairs or Yeah, yeah, yeah. Nice. Concrete steps. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That is uh that's still in a cave. So we because I've got these cave reverbs, I can use them where I uh, where I want to sort of tell different parts of the story. And this you'll never guess what this is, but this is this is horse semen. So <laughs> didn't think you'd be hearing no. that today, would you? Did you? <laughs> well, it's a possibility. <laughs> um, so we're just doing research. I was just doing some research about a horse magazine, uh, looking through some horse magazines. And at the back, there's like semen trading. And of course, because horses are, you know, investments. And so this is, um, and this time of year happens at different times of the year. And this is uh, polo horse semen from Argentina. And tells you something about class and about, you know, because obviously polo is a very expensive thing and is associated with certain class. And also the commodification of something as personal as spunk. You know? <laughs> <laughs> and um, and also the system that you, how they get it, you know, they have a tempting mare whose job it is to sort of flirt in front of the horse. And then just before the horse is about to ride her, they whip her out of the way and then they put in a, a sort of a bit of scaffolding with a sort of fake horse vagina in front of the horse and it just sort of does its business there. It's all very undignified. and But you can buy it. So we spent, you know, 170 quid on some horse semen trying to think, okay, let this is a good part of the story. It's a small detail. Let's try and build it in. And then I found somebody on Etsy that makes semen jewellery, so human semen jewellery. So you can send your jizz to her and she'll... Yeah, I can't believe I'm talking about that. Anyway, <laughs> you send your jewelry to her, and she'll make it into earrings or what have you, and that you can you can wear a necklace. And so we thought, well, presumably she just mixes it with some clay or something like that. So that's what we did. We mixed it with some modelling clay and baked it to mm. make these beads, and then sort of made a, a shaker out of it. And it's a small, it's a tiny, small thing. Nobody in the audience is going to know that that's semen, but it's a small. It's sort of in a way that's. Uh, it's a kind of a detail for us about how we're constructing it and thinking about it. And this is about rebirth and there's something really, it's just a tiny, tiny, tiny little detail in it, but it tells you a little something, how complicated and messed up our relationship with nature is that we're wanking off horses to sell the jizz to each other. You know, it's so weird because that horse is particularly, is stronger than that horse or whatever. Particularly, you know, it's so dark and weird and twisted and it seemed like a good this is about rebirth this section so it's like oh well this is a good moment to have it this is the moment for the horse jizz yeah, exactly. yeah. <laughs> have you ever said that phrase before i've never said that phrase <laughs> but, um yeah but it's one of those things you know like you know going back to what i was saying 10 minutes ago which is you can now make music out of anything mm. so why would i use a snare drum there or why would i use a, a bouncy ball in a staircase i could use that if it was a story about yeah. education or something like that but why not use the sound of some horses and it's funny and yes. silly as well <laughs> so uh, so let's hear it in isolation and then build it back into the yeah so th this is it in isolation what i like is it sort of sounds a bit like the hooves a little bit yeah and, and what it what it does musically is if i play it here 
what it does is it allows the beat just to subside a little bit yeah so instead of it just the beat stopping it just it blends it so actually it's there as for a sort of musical and technical function or what have you right so there's that one and then out of out of there we come into what's called the horse is close and this is just lots and lots and lots of horses sort of galloping towards you and in the live show we've built triggers uh, midi triggers out of the skeleton so when you touch different bits of the skeleton you can trigger these memories and these sounds of these horses so this is sort of a complete counter to the bones our flutes which is there you're blowing through it and here we are 20,000 30,000 years later 40,000 years later and we can now touch the bone and hear the sound of a horse which is an extraordinary leap or is an extraordinary thing that's happened over the last you know if you showed that to somebody back then they really would think you were divine so yeah you know they'd heard the future or the past or they could hear the ancestors or whatever so this is like there's no musicians involved anymore in a way it's just we're playing musical instruments in the traditional way this is all about we can hear you can hear the flutes from the very beginning the very first sound that we heard and it's just accelerating, it's getting faster and faster. It's a little bit gabba, it's a little bit techno. You can nearly dance to it, probably not, but some kind of frenzy. You can still hear a little of the flutes in the background. And then one of my favourite bits of the whole record comes up, which is, uh, you can hear the horse breathe through its note, like, there. And that's one of the first sounds, that's the first human sound we hear on the record, is one of the flute players from the orchestra go, down the leg of a horse. Right. So you hear that at the very beginning, at the end you hear a real horse. Right. And this was a coincidence. So this, this was made by Rana Eid, who's a sound designer in Lebanon. And I asked her to build me the sound of freedom, like try and create a sort of what, a sort of paradise or heaven or what, a beautiful place for this horse to exist. It's been a racehorse. It's been whipped and raced and looked after, yes, but also exploited. So I asked her to create like a, a green space for it, give it plenty of grass. You can hear some birds in the background. And I was like, can you add some water and make it running water? So you, you, can you hear a little stream? Yeah. It's like a little stream and then she's giving it a couple of friends. And it's just there, you know, and it's just... It's just there, it's just existing. And then I, I wrote like a little... Well, the piano is quite shocking here, I think, but it's the idea of a sort of single instrument. And I wrote almost like a little sort of choral piece, like church piece almost, like a little hymn or something. And I gave it to a, a piano player called Danilo Perez, who's an extraordinary piano player. He's a Panamanian icon, um, a jazz icon. He's part, has been part of the Wayne Shorter Quartet for many years and very generous, instinctual, beautiful person and player. It's a real privilege for me to have him on a, on a record like this. 
And I said to him, take my chords and make it your own, but just duet with a horse. So he's responding to what Rana did, these horse sounds. And ultimately, it's a little offering to suggest a more harmonious relationship between man and horse, where the horse is free, the human's free, and they're just playing together, existing together, being together, listening, the human listening to the horse rather than necessarily the other way around. That's it, really. That's the, that's the moment. It's a very gentle end to the story. As you say, peaceful, kind of hopeful uh, future. Well, it's the only future because if we continue our level of exploitation, then we'll die. We'll all die. And human life is not going to be sustainable above certain degrees, temperatures, you know, already in parts of India and Pakistan at certain times of the year, it's starting to go above temperatures where humans start to cook. So if we carry on what we're doing, we're not going to be about. So the only way, the only way is collaboration. The only way we're going to survive is by collaboration. And the only way we're going to get through life together is I don't make my trousers. I need somebody to make trousers and hopefully in exchange I can make them a piece of music out of a horse that right. they might want to hear. Um, or someone else is growing apples that, that I might eat. You know, the only way we can work, there's only way this works is if we fundamentally accept that we need each other and that's what the that's the only way it's going to work and yeah that's what the i guess that's what the the end of it presents somehow and then in a way as an illustration of this is uh the communication and collaboration you've done through the course of the creation of this you know you've collaborated with lots and lots of people doing lots of different kinds of things from straightforward musicians to sound designers to instrument makers to yeah you know, yeah it's it's a fascinating project um we always ask everybody who comes on the podcast if there is a piece of technology or a piece of equipment that um they couldn't live without or um couldn't function without and sometimes that would relate to a specific project yeah um is there what would you say yours would be probably right now it's my glasses <laughs> because in the last two years my eyesight's just gone completely so it's surprisingly difficult to function without glasses when you can't see properly which and i'm still in denial about it so it's probably my glasses but my technology will always my choice will always be the same which would be the sampler the ability to take any sound and turn it into music as i was talking about before it's just too you know it's just too big a gift to to ignore really yeah it's just so much my my advice if anyone's listening and makes music and thinking about making music if you pick up a guitar right now as we're speaking there's probably 20 million other people in the world also picking up a guitar trying to write something original whereas if you record the sound of the room that you're in and with the people that you're in or the thing that's on the, in directly in front of you whether it's a cup or a table or 
you're the only one in the world doing that with that cup in that table at that time, you know. Um, or record what's outside your window. If it's in Ukraine, it's going to be something sounding potentially very different to somebody in Syria, to somebody in Ghana, to somebody in Islington, or somebody in the Kent Marshes. So it's immediately unique. It's immediately yours. And it's immediately taking part. And I think that, I think for me that it's just so much easier to write music like that and to write, create something original. Yeah, very interesting. Um, another question we like to ask people is if they have a, a routine or a process that helps them get to where they want to get. I have hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of routines, I have to say, and things you constantly need. Um, you constantly need to trip your brain up. Because it's very hard, like if you're sat down at a piano, for example, it's incredibly hard to write an original piece of music because you're just overwhelmed with the weight of everybody else that's done that before you, whether it be Prokofiev or Rachmaninoff or Stravinsky or whether it be Carol King or in the same way with a drum machine with a 909 or an 808, they sound amazing, but you're up against a hundred million pieces of music that are already using those sounds. So it's all about tricking your brain. And so I use all sorts of things to do that. I use different shoes. So today I'm wearing, because I need to concentrate, and take, I'm wearing a pair of Trickers velvet slippers. But I've got flip-flops that I wear if I'm making more different kind of music. Um, just even just change, it sounds pathetic, but just changing the height that you're at. Like you just see everything, you just notice, I look out my window and I see over the hedge a bit more and I can see in, into the field. I've got different incense. I burn different incense depending on what I'm, what mood that I'm in that day. I turn the lights on or I turn the lights off. Um, I tape my fingers together so that I play differently. I put the computer up really high so it's hard for me to reach. I yeah, it's hundreds and hundreds of them, you know, because it's the the blank sheet of paper is is the death of the human spirit. I think a lot of the time, <laughs> I love it, but it's also just overwhelming you open up the computer and there's now you know unlimited amounts of samples and technology you can use to construct it so you must you've got to come to it with something i think you've got to come it from a different direction and my one routine that i think is really helpful um for me and i have no idea if it's helpful for anybody else but all my compositions start before i open the computer so I plan and I think about it for, you know, I'm doing a record at the moment that's, I've been writing for three years and I haven't written a note yet. It's made out of a billion objects, billion audio events. And I'm going to try and hear it in an hour, which is very, very hard because it involves very complicated maths and streams and things. But I've got to think of the sound. If I can multiply any sound by a billion, that's a huge, you know, is it the sound of my son's first breath? Is it Donald Trump coughing? Is it a tree being chopped down? Is it... What is it? Is it a nuclear explosion? I can't solve that. And I've been thinking about that for three years and working, talking to scientists and artists trying to solve it. And I haven't, it might take me 20 years to solve that one. But the answer isn't just opening the laptop and beginning. It's thinking and preparing and thinking about those options so that the laptop becomes a tool then, you know. So if I said to you, write a piece of music at the piano, you'd go, uh, oh crap whereas if i said to you okay write a piece of music on the piano that just uses the lower half of the keyboard that is about earthworms 
and their lives underground or what have you, you'd immediately have some ideas. You'd got some shapes, you know, or if I said to you, okay, write a piece of music about the last bird alive before, before it's extinction or something like that, then you've immediately got something to do and you've got a phrase and you've got a sense and you know why you're doing it. And the, the tools then are just there. They literally just become tools again. But if I just gave you the piano, it'd be overwhelming and you would just do it because it sounded nice. And you, some of the best pieces of music in the world have been written because they sound nice. So I'm not saying this is the only way to do it. And I'm not saying this is how people should do it. It's just, I think it's helpful um, for someone like me when it's my job, I have to write on average 10 to 15 pieces of music a day. So in all sorts of different styles. And so you need strategies because you can't, you know, if you work on a film deadline, there's no, there's no margin of error. You've got to deliver the 10 pieces of music that day. So you can't be like, oh, I'm not in the mood or I'm not, you know, you've got to do it. Yeah. Yeah. That is a really interesting point. We also ask about advice. And in some ways, you know, your answers already have all been pieces of advice. But yeah. um, having gone through various different stages of the music industry, in effect, from studying music, learning how to play the piano, you know, working yeah. with other musicians, being in a band, you know, doing all these different things. Is there any advice that you have picked up along the way or, or something that you might have received early on that has stood the test of time for you that you would pass on to somebody else? I think it's about, it's difficult because lots of people have lots of different reasons for going into making music and to express themselves and a lot of different, um, there's a lot of different ways through all of that. But uh, my, I mean, something happened to me very early on, which was a huge blessing, which was a friend of mine made a, had a big hit with, you probably might even know who I'm talking about, but had a big hit with a kids TV theme song put to a rave beat in in the 90s or the early 90s or what have you, had a big hit with it, made loads of money, opened his studio and started making not cheesy records or what have you. And I thought, I'm going to do that. I'm going to, so I did a, I did a crappy TV theme song and I got offered two and a half grand for it, which in the early 90s when you're 21 was a lot of money. And I was like, well, if they're offering me that, then maybe I should do it myself because I know record distributors and things like that. So I pressed it all up. And then it didn't sell. It was a total flop. And then I had to pay for all the records. And I was unemployed at the time. So I had to pay for all the records. Um, I had to pay to ship them to the record stores to try and sell them. They didn't sell. I had to pay to ship them back. And then eventually I had to sell to burn them and melt them all down as well. So it was like every stage of lose. And I'm deeply embarrassed about it. As you know, I haven't told you the name of the record <laughs> or what it was. So I'm deeply, deeply ashamed of it. But it, it really... If that had been a hit, that would have been really, would have really knocked me off course. It might have allowed me to get some studio and time and money and things like that. But actually, I didn't, it was not something I believed in. I was just doing it for the money. I was just doing it for exposure. I was just trying to get somewhere else, but it wasn't who I wanted to be. And as a result, you know, if that had been a hit, I'd be even more embarrassed about it now than, than I was. So there's something about, I can't remember exactly what it was about being in your own lane. That's a really a, american expression but like be in your bit you know it's much easier to be you in your bit than it is to try and be in somebody else's bit you know to try and i think one of the biggest problems when you're starting out in music and 
I still have it today and I should imagine a lot of other people still do, but you still want to try and sound like other people. You want to try and sound like your heroes. You want to, you want to sound like Jay Diller if you're making hip hop or you want to sound like early Todd Terry. Well, I do. You want to sound like early Todd Terry if you're making house music or you want to sound like Stravinsky if you're writing. But that's, they already exist and they all, they've all got their thing. Try and be something that in 50 years time, people are like, I want to sound like that. It's much easier to make your own thing and be in your own, be in your own space than it is to try and fit into somebody else's corner. I need to think of a better fridge magnet version. Of- <laughs> <laughs> but at the same time, it's quite good hearing all, all the thought processes involved in saying that. No. Yeah. The life experiences. That- yeah. And it's, it's a real trick, particularly because capitalism just wants to repeat for cash, you know. So if you have a hit with a big record company, they'll just want another one roughly similar to that, but slightly different so they can sell it again. Like Coca-Cola, you know, that Coca-Cola is rich because they do the same thing again and again. And music's not like that. You know, music is a process. It's not a product. And so it can become really distracting. I still get distracted by that. You know, I still get DJ gigs where they put me on at three o'clock in the morning and I really want to play some strange horse music. But the more the more you can be honest about yourself, then the more valuable it becomes, ironically. Thank you so much, Matthew. It's been brilliant to be here. Fantastic oh. to have your hospitality and oh. welcome us Peanut into butter. this space and hear all about the horse. <laughs> yeah. And we should return to the horse and we should let the horse take us towards the end. Um, which section of the album should we return to? Or maybe it should just be the horses here, whatever you feel is right. I think we should hear a bit of the horse has a voice just for me there's something about it where it it captures some of the excitement around the sort of what the fuckery like oh my god this is a horse skeleton we're involved in some weird messianic paganistic ritualistic fantastical weird space that i haven't ever quite been before in in music and also just makes me want to like whirl my hair i don't have any hair whirl my head around (laughs) If I had hair, yeah, go crazy. It would, it would make me want to whirl my head around, and that's that feels like a valuable bit of music as well. Head whirling, <laughs> excellent, excellent head whirling music to see us out. Thanks again, Matthew Herbert. Thanks for having me. Thank you for listening, and in particular, thanks to all of you who have signed up to support us on Patreon. I'm just one part of the team that brings you Take Notes, and it relies on your support. Access to Patreon includes the full-length videos of new episodes where possible, ad-free episodes, and detailed gear lists, among many other things. If you'd like to join, head to the link on our socials or website. For pictures, highlight clips, and behind-the-scenes content, head to our Instagram or YouTube channel. And on Discord, you can join the growing Take Notes community. Once again, thank you for listening. Until next time, goodbye. Thank you.